And I encourage you to reach for a Bible if you could and to turn with me to page 996. Page 996. If you were with us in the run-up to Christmas, we began our journey through 2 Timothy together. We've got two weeks left of it, and we're in the second half of chapter 3 this morning. Why don't I lead us in prayer before I read our passage to us? Thank you, Father, that salvation is indeed through faith in Jesus Christ and that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation. We pray, therefore, that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your word this morning, that we might know you, that you might work in us, and that you might teach us and train us and correct us in any way that we need, and that we might know the hope that is found in Jesus alone, the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through his gospel. And so we pray for the help of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. And let me read to us then from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and starting at verse 10. Uh, Paul's just been talking about people, if you weren't here, who have a form of godliness, uh, verse 5, but deny its power. They're in the church, but they've departed from the truth. And he says, verse 10, to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Can I ask you to hold that open in front of you? There's also an outline on the back of the, the notice sheet, as there usually is. Um, if you weren't here, when we were looking at uh, to Timothy before Christmas, we realized that Timothy himself, as a guy who's a church leader in Ephesus, was a, something of a, a crossroads in his life. Um, his spiritual mentor had been Paul. Paul was at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry as well. And Timothy was expected to be taking the baton on from Paul and continuing the work that he'd been doing. But through no fault of Paul's, the situation that Timothy was inheriting was pretty dire. There was uh, persecution hitting the church from outside and within the church. There were some very popular false teachers who had departed from the truth of God's word but had a big following around them. As a result, Timothy at this stage is feeling pretty isolated, as you can imagine, and he's at least tempted, at least tempted to, to chuck in the towel himself. And uh, this letter is Paul's final charge to him. He's got 
three pages to remind him of the power of the gospel that's been entrusted to him and to try and motivate him to keep teaching it and keep preaching it faithfully. And we saw three main lines of application from this letter written by an apostle to a church leader 2,000 years ago to us today. One, if you're a church leader, it's pretty obvious. This is telling us the way in which we should go, encouraging us to, to keep doing the same job that Timothy was being given to do. For us as churches, it sets out the ministry that congregations should seek and encourage and pray for and make sure that their ministers are giving them. And then as individual Christians as well, because every Christian is not just a disciple, but a disciple maker. This is the kind of ministry we're meant to imitate in our own context, our own households, among our friends uh, and neighbors as well. And just like Timothy, anyone who's living for Jesus and trying to serve him in this kind of way will face a temptation to be ashamed. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, one of the best trained, one of the most courageous gospel workers that we know of from the first century, in chapter 1, verse 8, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. There will be a temptation to what I refer to as moral cowardice in the heart of each one of us, uh, a reluctance to take a, a principled stand for Jesus because we're afraid of the disapproval of the people around us. And this morning, Paul says very simply to Timothy and to us, continue. Do you see that in verse 14 of uh, chapter 3? It's maybe one of the key verses in the book. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. That's our big application. Don't quit. Continue. Uh, the internet is full of pithy quotes about uh, quitting, that you can get tattooed across your biceps if that's your kind of thing. Pain is temporary, but quitting is forever. You, I'm sure have seen that somewhere. Age wrinkles the body. Quitting wrinkles the soul. Uh, you know, powerful if you, again, are into that kind of thing. What's quite striking, though, is that when Paul's trying to motivate Timothy to keep going, he doesn't just go for a, a sound bite that is quite likely to induce feelings of guilt in most but instead he seeks to encourage us. We're going to see a whole host of ways that he does that. All of the detail of the passage pushes this one big application, continue. And so that's where we are this morning. Two main headings. First, continue in what you've learned. And I've broken it down into four things under this first heading. First, verse 10, remember my example. Paul says again, you, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Uh, there's lots going on in the verses, but at least part of the flavor is, Timothy, when, you know that when I'm encouraging you to keep going in this ministry, I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't also done myself. All of those mys make the, the point. It's not just talk for Paul, not just instructions he gives to something, someone else. It's stuff that he's done and lived personally. 
in Antioch, and the, the different place names, you can read what happens back in the book of Acts. In Antioch, Paul preached, and lots of Gentiles believed, but then some Jews stirred up persecution against him, and he was driven out of the district. In Iconium, people tried to stone Paul, so he had to flee. In Lystra, they finally got him. They pelted rocks at him. They dragged him out of the city, thinking that he was dead. And Timothy himself was a Lystra boy. That's where he and Paul had first met. And so Paul's reminding him of their long friendship. And he's saying, you know that from the very first day we met, my life has been marked by persecutions, but also consistent, patient endurance in the face of all of that pain. And you know, too, at the end of verse 12, how good God has been to me. He's rescued me from all of these trials. I'm here to tell the tale. And Paul knows that one day he's going to face a trial that he's not going to be rescued from, but in a different sense he is. If you glance on to chapter 4, verse 18, he says, the Lord will rescue me, same word, from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And he's speaking about at the moment of his passing, of course. So this is the punch of what Paul's saying. Timothy, all around you, there are people who are deserting the truth. Uh, within the church, there are people who are departing from authentic ministry. And I know you're tempted to do the same. But if my example, if God's faithfulness to me has ever meant anything, don't quit. Keep going. Continue. And trust that just as God was faithful to me in my life, for as long as he wanted me here on earth, so he'll be faithful to you in life or in death. Second thing to remember, the times, remember the times, verses 12 and 13 show that Paul didn't suffer just because he was an apostle, that it's something that the Lord has for all of God's people. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Um, I was once asked to do a series of talks somewhere on different promises that God makes to people in the Bible, God makes to his, his children in the Bible. Um, I found a whole bunch to do. The God who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That was a, an encouraging one. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's another one that I come back to time and again in my own life. The folks were a little bit surprised when I included verse 12 in the, the series. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But as we saw before Christmas, first half of chapter 3, it's as sure as night follows day. In these last days, we will be surrounded by impostors. These are the times in which we live. Uh, there will be a world that attacks and there will be a worldly church that persecutes. People who are deceived by the lies of the devil and in their ministry will then deceive others. And because that's what these last days are like, it's inevitable that unless we're ashamed of Christ, we will take heat for Christ in one way or another. Unless we're ashamed of Christ and his word, we will take heat for Christ in one way or another. And Paul says, remember that, Timothy, so that you're not surprised, so that you're not daunted when the day comes, continue. 
Third, um, a pretty personal one for Timothy, verse 14. Again, remember your first teachers. As for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Um, chapter 1 told us that Timothy's mum, Eunice, was a Christian. Uh, so was his granny, Lois. And here we learn that from his earliest days, they'd been immersing Timothy in the scriptures. Um, Paul's saying to Timothy at a crunch moment in his life, remember them. Uh, remember the people who loved you more than any other. Remember their faith. Remember the hours they'd have spent praying for you. Remember all of their instruction of you. Remember the faithful life that they lived out in front of you. And continue in what they taught and modeled to you. Uh, we might be able to think of parents, grandparents. For some of us who won't have had Christian parents or grandparents, we might be able to think of close Christian friends, influential Christian leaders, people who first shared the gospel with us. We think of their love, their prayers, their example. Paul says, remember them and continue. And finally, fourth encouragement to continue here, remember your own track record. Uh, it's there in verse 14 itself. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. You can only continue in something if you're doing it already, I take it. And uh, so Paul's saying, other people may desert Timothy, but that's not who you are, and it's not who you've always been. You know, he's saying, Timothy, that the, that the gospel isn't just a kid's story. You firmly believe that our Savior Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know that the gospel is true. Intellectually, you know that Jesus rose from the dead. Experientially, you know the Spirit's work in your life. So even though you're tempted, and even though it's hard, don't wander now. Uh, verse 10 makes the same point when it says, you have followed my way of teaching. He'd not just kind of followed it on Instagram, he'd followed in the footsteps of what Paul was doing. He'd already been doing it. So Paul's saying, it's not just my life, my faith, my kind of work, Timothy, it's, it's who you are. It's what you've always done. So keep doing it. Um, so I was reflecting on these verses, it made me think back to the people who first taught and modeled Christ to me uh, and stop and give thanks for them, their passion for Christ, their zeal for godliness, um, the, the love that they poured into my life when I was a, not yet a Christian and then a baby Christian, the humility that many of them had, the sacrifices that they made for Christ and for the good of others, people like me, the way that some of them went through horrible things in life and persevered faithfully. I suspect we'll all be able to think of people in our life like that. And as well as thinking of them, it made me go back to the objective truth of the gospel. But well, I, I do know that Jesus is the truth. I firmly believe that. I know it intellectually, I know it experientially, I know he rose from the dead. 
I know he's Lord of all. I know he's promised to be with me in whatever I have to go through now. And I know that on one day he will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his eternal kingdom. And I know that many of you know that too and firmly believe it. And I know that however tempted we can be to take a knee or to step back from service, that we continue to firmly believe. And so Paul says, continue, continue, continue. The second major heading just really says the same thing in a different way, continue with the word of God. He's meant to be continuing with what he's learned as a man, and now he's continuing with God's word as a minister of the gospel as well. And we've seen all the way through um, to Timothy, the primary charge that he's been given is to guard the gospel. This is the task of the servant of the Lord, guard the gospel. And we've seen those different images of what that's going to look like as a pyromaniac in chapter one, fan your teaching gift into flame as a guardian, defend the gospel against error, as a trainer, pass it on to the next generation, as a workman, handle the word of truth correctly, as an honorable vessel, as a gentle servant, do God's work in God's way, live out what you preach, who you are matters as much as what you say. And now here Paul is saying, this is why authentic Christian ministry is necessarily word ministry. Authentic Christian ministry is necessarily the ministry of the word. Two things to remember here. We might say two reasons why if our church ever starts to, to drift away from the, the teaching of God's word, you guys should start shouting and screaming like a child who's just had their ice cream stolen uh, because you should, uh, you should probably leave at the same time. First then, remember the power of Scripture. Read from verse 14 again. As for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, many will know of at least J.B. Phillips. He was a minister in London during World War II. And uh, he used his time in the air raid shelters to retranslate the New Testament into the, the kind of translation that he thought the kids in his youth group would be able to read and, and understand. And at the end of the war, it got published. And uh, he wrote a little introduction about how struck he was as he tried to translate the scriptures into modern English of their, the living quality of God's word. He came up with this famous line that's been quoted ever since that translating the Bible made him feel like uh, an electrician trying to rewire an ancient house, but without being able to turn the mains off first. That's the, the living power of God's word, he was saying. And that's very much what Paul's talking about here. Uh, I found a list online of the you can find lots of these lists. The, the top 10 books in the history of the world. Click. So uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace. I know some of you will have very sophisticated opinions about what should and shouldn't be on this list. Uh, Flaubert's Madame Bovary was on there. George Eliot's Middlemarch. I don't know what else you would have. Great books. 
Uh, you don't need to read them. I realize that will offend some of the literate uh, among you, but you don't actually need to read them. They can't make you wise for salvation. No one but Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. And nowhere but the Bible lets us meet him in such a way that we know him authoritatively and are saved by him, come into relationship with God through him and share in his risen life. But by nature, our, our minds and our hearts are darkened and futile. Our sin blinds us in such a way that we're incapable of knowing God. But then God works by his spirit and through his word to give us minds and hearts that, that can receive Jesus as Lord. And so the scriptures make us wise for salvation. Only when they're received by faith, of course. Just hearing it doesn't change us unless we receive it. But they are God's appointed means to bring us back into relationship with him. And Paul says to Timothy, you know that. You've experienced that life-giving power in your own life. And you've seen God work through his scriptures to save other people. So why, Timothy, now would you even begin to contemplate for a second the idea that your ministry could head off in a different direction that departs from God's word? It might make you more popular, but it would be madness. Like a doctor trying to get people better without medicine. Like a pilot trying to fly his plane without any fuel. Why would you try and do that? So a great question to ask of this or any church or ministry, where is the, the power in the ministry? What are we trusting in as the thing that God will use to bring people to himself and to grow them? Where's our confidence? Is it in God's word or in something else? Maybe we're tempted to trust in an experience of God apart from his word or in the power of our community or our ability to put on slick events or for some, some sort of ritual or just by being nice to people, love. Where does our confidence lie? Where's the power? Where's the emotional center of the work that we're doing? And Paul says, remember the power of the scripture, that that's how God works to make people wise for salvation. And that'll motivate you to continue in your ministry as a leader, as a church, and personally. Finally, and I, I've gone as quickly as I could to get to 16 and 17 because they're such great verses, but they do just come at the end of the passage. <laughs> they're just getting a few minutes of our time. Remember, finally, the sufficiency of the Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's one of the great standalone texts of the New Testament, isn't it? I was encouraged to memorize it as a young Christian. Uh, heard countless talks on it, the divine inspiration, the supreme authority of the Bible. It's an incredible thought. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to do this. I remember being encouraged to try and do this when I was a baby Christian, to put your hand in front of your mouth and to try and speak out loud without any breath coming out 
and it's you look a bit silly if you try, but it's impossible to do because your words are carried on your breath to the people who hear them. I'm sure there's a more scientific explanation of what's going on, but that's the, that's the way it works. The, the Bible exhaled, is what we're being told here, breathed out by God. So that the Bible is not just words written by people about God, even inspirational words written by people about God. It is God perfectly speaking to us about himself. And because God is the ultimate author of the Bible, it has to be the case that the Bible then has the supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. You can't have human reason or experience or even the authority of a leader or of the church as a community. They, they've all got their place, but they could never be in the driving seat or on the throne in a, in a place above God in his word. And because God is flawless, every word that he says is flawless too. There's an, 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 a necessary link between what you think of God and what you think of the Bible. If he is perfect, then his word is too. If you think his word isn't, then you're questioning whether he is. As true of all of that is, in the original context, these words weren't primarily there to teach us about the authority of the Bible, but more about their, the scripture's sufficiency. Paul was wanting to assure Timothy that in the Bible, God had already given him absolutely everything he needs to be able to continue in the ministry that God has given him to do. Even when you're in a situation where the church is facing persecution, serious persecution, and even when it's riddled with false teaching, and even when everybody else is abandoning the truth, still, the scriptures are everything you need to keep going faithfully. And in 16 and 17, four specific functions are listed. Can you just glance there at the end of 16? They, they come in two pairs. First two are about belief or creed. The last two are about action or conduct. And each of them has a positive and a negative. So is there someone who needs to know God better? Take it, that's all of us is through the Bible that God teaches them? Is there someone who's doctrinally a bit, a bit waffy or in error? Well, the Bible will be the way that God reproves them. Has someone morally gone astray? The Bible will correct them. Do they want to grow in righteousness? Then it will be through the Bible that God trains them. In that way, the Bible is the, the complete handbook that leaves, specifically here, the Christian man of God, the minister, the elder, literally thoroughly complete for every good work that might ever be required of him. Uh, when I chat with younger and future ministers about the kind of issues that they're going to face in their work, uh, the list can feel pretty intimidating for all of us. You say, well, you'll you go to a, a new church, and within days you'll meet people who are very discouraged in their faith, or who are even almost paralyzed by doubt. You'll meet people who are sick and who are dying. You'll meet the bereaved 
the anxious, the depressed. You'll meet people who are seeking wisdom and guidance. You'll meet people stuck in a pattern of sin. There'll be people with pretty horrible issues at work or in their families or in relationships. You'll meet people who are on the verge of falling away from the faith. There'll be people facing opposition for their faith, persecution. That's just a, a few of the things that you're going to meet in your first couple of weeks. And my own experience has been that the, the deeper and the more intractable the kind of the, the theology stuff or the pastoral problems that I've faced in my ministry, the more I've been grateful for the truth of this verse and the more I've experienced its reality. What, what can you possibly say out of your own wisdom when your friend in ministry abandons Christ and walks away from his wife? What, can you, what have you got to say when someone's child dies? Where do you turn when someone feels addicted to sin? It's my increasing experience that I find myself thinking I have absolutely nothing to offer anyone apart from Christ in his word. No human wisdom, no bright ideas, no hope, nothing. And so every time I've been grateful to know that Christ is really all that we need and that the scriptures are sufficient for every work that we're given to do. John Stott said it really well. Do we hope in our own lives or in our teaching ministry to overcome error and grow in truth or to overcome evil and grow in holiness? Then it's to the scriptures that we must turn. Is that us this morning? Do we want to grow in truth? Do we want to grow in holiness? The new year is a really good time to renew habits of Bible reading and prayer or to start new habits. It could be that over Christmas, in the busyness of everything that's been happening, the change of routine, you just got out of the habit of doing that. Got out of the habit of reading God's Word as a couple, as a family. Kids' Bible times have gone out of the window. Start of a new year is a really good time to come back to basics. Do we want to grow in truth? Do we want to grow in godliness? We cast ourselves upon God in prayer and ask him to work in us by his spirit and through his word. But we don't help ourselves if the word stays on the shelf. So it's a good time to be reflecting. So Paul's saying, as we draw to a close, to his dear friend Timothy, that the times in which you're being called to serve are pretty terrible. They're perilous and they're painful. Lots of your fellow ministers have departed from the gospel. The congregation you're in charge of doesn't want to hear the gospel. No wonder you feel like chucking in the towel. Timothy, remember the power of the scriptures. They are the word that your unbelieving town needs. Remember the sufficiency of the scriptures. They are the word that any church needs if it's going to grow in truth and holiness. So Timothy, continue. Continue as a man of God. Continue as a servant of Christ in the faith that you were taught and have become convinced of and in the ministry you've begun.
And for those in any kind of Christian leadership in any sphere, this is the ministry we're to continue in or come back to. For us as a church, this is who we are. This is our DNA. We were reflecting recently. This has been the life and ministry of this church for 20 years. And we all have a responsibility to keep praying that it remains so and that we persevere in it and work for it so we continue. And for all of us as individual Christians, this is the way of life and the sort of ministry that we're to imitate. So there are lots of other people in our towns, our neighbors and our families can come to be taught the scriptures, which are able to make them wise for the glorious salvation that is ours through faith in Christ. Continue. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do know and have firmly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, therefore, that you would help us to continue in what we have learned, knowing those from whom we learned it, knowing the power of your word to save like no other book can, and knowing the sufficiency of your word to help us to grow in truth and in holiness. It's our longing for ourselves as a church this year. We take a moment to say to you that it's our longing as individuals personally as well. And so we pray, Father, for your help that amidst the busyness of life and competing priorities and hearts that are prone to wander, that you would keep us reading and delighting in and receiving with faith and obedience the scriptures, your holy word to us in the Bible. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we